Protests in China and a major election in Taiwan with surprising results. Welcome back to Simon and White, and I'm Christian White, and joined as always by Mark Simon. Mark, please say hello. Hi, everybody. How are you? Happy thanks post-Thanksgiving. Well, Mark, a stunning series of events. Um, so we're used to protests in Hong Kong that used to be that are that were squelched by the government. And now they're turning up in mainland China, in Beijing, uh, in Xinjiang and in Shanghai. Started mostly over uh, unrest, upset at COVID restrictions, but it seems to have mushroomed beyond that. People are saying that uh, they would rather not have Xi Jinping, that they prefer democracy to dictatorship. Uh, you know, this was sparked by a fire in Xinjiang where uh, 10 people died in an apartment block. It was believed, that whether true or not, that government restrictions related to COVID prevented the fire department from getting there, prevented people yes. from getting out because they're in a state of lockdown. And China remains essentially the most locked down country in the world. I don't know, maybe North Korea takes the cake there. Um, but, you know, what do you make of this? You've been in, you worked in Asia for decades. You saw uh, protests and sort of the real sentiment of the Chinese people versus what is reported by the CCP. So what do you think is going on? Well, I think the main thing is, is that we have to go back and we have to look that basically the Chinese people have figured out a long time ago that the rest of the world is opening it up and they are not. Um, there is in Asia, in, in I'd say, the, the, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan and, and China, there is a, a, a fear of death uh, that we, I would say that's a little bit stifling for them. In other words, the, I, you can say, hey, this might kill you. And in all those societies, basically, you will get the reaction that you would get here from, I would say, you know, our pro-mask, you know, lockdown people, but across the board, much wider. That has started to dissipate especially in China and Hong Kong, and a little bit even in Taiwan. People know the government is using this to control things. They also know that they've been sold a lie on the COVID prevention programs that they have. Look, my belief is that basically you might as well take a sugar pill as well as take one of these Chinese vaccines. In other words, I think they're completely worthless. A lot of people think that. And I think the Chinese know that. And I think they know if they open up, they're going to have it's going to it's going to look like New Jersey at the at the beginning, New York City at the beginning of COVID. In other words, they're going to have mass deaths. That's going to spark unrest. That's going to be a real problem for them. But it's been building. It's been building for a while. Um, you know, they're not going to have their freedom convoys. It's not going to be like it's not going to be like Sydney where there's going to be, you know, neighborhoods declare themselves free. But it's been growing. And. It's hard to overestimate the lockdown that is in China. You could go to a restaurant, for example, and at the restaurant, somebody comes in and they said, you've tested positive. The entire restaurant gets locked down in that restaurant by force with armed police outside in those white uniforms for a week or for five days. You could get locked down in a place where you don't have food. Things aren't happening. People are getting their buildings locked. You know, there, there is this repressive system that, even the Chinese, it's been on for a while. In America, we'd have been out in the streets with, you know, our Second Amendment rights would have been well in, well enhanced, <laughs> you know, used right. long time ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but they tolerate a lot. And I think what's happened is, is this, this fire really struck a nerve with people. It struck a nerve, not just because these people died, but because everybody's experience, everybody has the building that's locked. Everybody has the office that is locked. 
And that is that is what that's really set these people off. Now, right now, the demonstrations are primarily at universities and in the streets. Um, we have some retired, I would say retired reporters from Apple Daily, Stringers, who are still up there. Uh, about two days, about a day ago, they started popping off again a little bit, you know what I'm saying? And I get some of that. And look, it looks to me like the reporting we're seeing is pretty accurate. I think the take is reasonably accurate. We're not talking yet tens of thousands of people or Hong Kong-like demonstrations of hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking really thousands. At university campuses, it starts out with 40 or 50. Before you know it, it's a couple of thousand. The question that we really have to ask is, where does this go? I do not believe that it's the end of the CCP at this point in time. Right. I don't believe there's an alternative structure to Xi Jinping that could take advantage of this. So that's, I think, where we're at right now. It's, it strikes me, a couple of things strike me. One um, is there has been unrest in China. We've seen this before. There were protests in Tibet that led to a, another huge lockdown in the last decade. And there are protests in Xinjiang that have led to the Chinese creating you know, concentration camps with more than a million people in them there. But this is a protest by Han Chinese. I think there have been some since 1989, since widespread protests centered around Tiananmen Square and the subsequent massacre there. But it's interesting to me, this is sort of, uh, we're not supposed to, I guess, rank ethnicities, but the fact is the way the Chinese yeah, view their country in the world is the Han are, are the deciding political cultural force in that country. And they're the ones who are upset. There's one other factor that strikes me is that once again, the United States is caught flat footed. Uh, you know, I think back to Jesse Helms on the floor of the Senate toward the end of the Clinton administration saying, uh, so Bill Clinton is looking for a legacy. Well, la-di-da, he already has one. Um, similarly, Joe Biden is, is, you know, they're originally going to come out with some new China policy and they haven't, they haven't announced one, but de facto they do have one, which is to maintain some of the Trump tariffs, but to send John Kerry over anew to negotiate some magic on climate. So, uh, you know, this goes back throughout our recent history. I think we were good at political warfare, the founding of America, the Declaration of Independence, essentially a divisive political warfare. Uh, World War II, we got the battle of ideas against fascism, Nazism, and the Cold War as well, especially the early and the late Cold War. The middle was off. Uh, but you look at, at the Prague Spring, the uprising in Czechoslovakia in 1968, or before that in 56 in Hungary, or 48 in Berlin, where the United States was largely just flat-footed, just sort of a distant observer, vaguely aware of events going on at the heart of some of our adversaries, where there's this opportunity to put our adversaries on the political back foot, uh, and yet we don't have any capability or even inclination to do that. We're just sort of like, oh, Dieter, 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 oh, that's interesting. Iran has been uh, undergoing intense protests for two months. So in China, wow, I guess they do have protests there. What, so, what, what, would, yeah. what would you do? I mean, what, what's, what's the action plan for that? that that's, the, that's, that's the hard thing because the CIA has long been out of the business of yeah. uh, political warfare, unless it's against the Republican administration in the US. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm kidding a little bit there, but uh, you know, the idea like 1948, we're gonna go put our thumb on the scale for the Christian Democrats in Italy because the NKVD is putting its thumb on the scale for the communists. Uh, but what could you do? You could first, it starts with moral clarity. I mean, people like Natan Sharansky, who was a dissident in prison in the Soviet Union, later emigrated to Israel, uh, just saying when, when they heard in prison that Ronald Reagan had called the evil empire 
an evil empire. It really just gave, a, gave them a tremendous boost in confidence. So start with moral clarity, but then practical things, uh, which are mechanisms, technology to help dissidents get past censorship and communicate with their people, that's easier said than done. You know, the last mile of getting a physical device, hardware or software to a dissident is tough, but we are the U.S. government. We spend five trillion plus a year. We should have some capability to do that. But more importantly, might just be making trouble for the Chinese on other fronts. They, they hate being condemned at the U.N. I'm not entirely sure why, because the U.N. is irrelevant, but they hate it. So let's do it. Um, maybe Pacific Command ought to, uh, you know, beef up their presence to have get the Chinese military a little bit distracted. Uh, we could insist that our allies also start raining on China's parade and say, look, if you crack down on these people like you did at Tiananmen, we're going to stop any sort of cooperation with you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's not a silver bullet. And as you point out, I don't think this is the incipient end of the CCP. Uh, but there are a couple things you could do. What do you think? I think the first thing is, is the moral clarity. I, I'm, I'm not a believer that People in China are sitting around going, oh, boy, if the Americans say something, then we'll do it. But I do <laughs> believe they like to know where people stand. So the moral clarity is like these guys are on our side and it puts down a marker that everybody else have to do. You know, the, Ger the Germans, you know, won't. But the French and everybody else say, yeah, you probably should respect human rights. You should give these people a say. You should get let them, you know, not crack down on them. I think that's really important because, as you said, whether it's Sharansky or whether it's you know, whether it's anybody else that we've learned in history, that the dissidents, and there will be people in jail for this, they do know if the world's by their side and they do know if the world doesn't care. I mean, I deal with this in Hong Kong all the time where, you know, I, I, I really, I still remember this guy who I don't want to name right now, but he was like a senior, former senior Obama administration official. I met him at this dinner where my boss, Jimmy, was getting an honor. And he was like, oh, yeah, they'll never let it. I mean, it's just so matter of fact, so cold. Um... And it was just, it, it was like, you know, it was like, if thank God one of the family members wasn't there, you know what I'm saying? Because it, it was just, even, even the people next to me, the two, it's pretty funny, I don't want to say again the name, but the guy who was there next to me, who was like a liberal, very liberal reporter, even he was like, man, what the hell's wrong with that guy? And the problem is he's one of these pro-China guys that basically can't believe they were wrong about China. So the reason why you have to have moral clarity to me is you got to wipe the other guys off the off the, off the map. We got to wipe all these people who are pro-China, who are apologists. We got to get them out of the room, get them off the field. And the way you get them off the field is you put down a marker and you say, "This is what we believe in. This is why we believe in it." The vast majority of the American people and other countries, democratic countries, agree with you on this. We're not asking anything of you, but what we're saying is, is like these are bad guys, the CCP. We're not going to have normal relations with them. We're going to give them a hard time. And what you want to do is drive from the halls who are the, the, the snakes and the shills and the quizlings of the CCP. Because I will say we have seen one thing. Paul Mosier of the, uh, of, of the New York Times pointed it out like clockwork. Boom. As soon as this stuff started happening, the counter messages started coming out. Even mm -hmm. the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, which is literally a united front group in my mind, completely united front group. <laughs> These guys within, you know, all of a sudden we see John Huntsman talking about how the cooperation and technical innovation between China. Now, I, my bet is, is Huntsman's smart enough, he wouldn't have recorded that session. And he's probably not thrilled about the way they're using it right now. But again, it's, it's the same message, the same thing. 
we, we have to have moral clarity when these instances happen with the Iranian students, with everybody else. This is the cynicism. Look, if these kids want to go out there and get themselves shot, if these kids want to go out there and do that, why is it the same people who can't wait for the Ukrainians to sacrifice themselves to take out Vladimir Putin don't have a nice word to say for demonstrators who are giving other people a hard time? In other words, it's, it's, it's so hypocritical. In other words, go Ukraine, go. Here's weapons. Here's money. You kill them for us, okay? Because that's, that's their hardline argument. Have you ever heard? You know, that's where, that, that's where I, I call them the, 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 the men with sunken chest of D.C. are always around <laughs> saying like, oh, you kill them for us and we like that. I happen to be completely upfront with the fact that I like the fact that the Ukrainians are basically pushing back the Russians. But I have but that's my primary thing. It's not because I'm there for the freedom and love of the Ukrainian people. If they're free, that's great. But the fact of the matter is my enemy's enemy, you know, I'm I'm using here. And we should have the same methodology with these students in China on a hard-nosed business besides the moral stuff. In other words, right. I think that's where we that's where we 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 start looking at our interest. It is in our interest to basically not have this Chinese Chinese Communist Party as a threat to us. So anything that causes them trouble, fine. Exactly. Exactly. And just getting to that simple understanding, you know, it seems like this binary of, well, we're not going to, you know, install classical liberal democracy tomorrow. So we got to stick with what we have. It's like, no, you can just make things harder. Um, and, you know, it, it, it'll focus the minds of Chinese if they're seeing political problems in Europe, in addition to the U.S., around the world, economic problems and military problems. I mean, we're not going to invade the Asian continent with a couple of marine expeditionary units. But, you know, you yeah, put sure. a couple of those off the coast of China, it means that a certain amount of naval personnel are going to be focused on that instead of thinking, how do you get you know more tanks to roll over these these protesters? No, is, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, it's like I think you and I were talking a while ago. It's 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 like what we're what we're saying is is that these these this this government is an evil regime, and look what they do to their own people. They do that to their own people. Look what they try to do abroad. You know, where they immediately send out their bots and all their you know, they're quizzlings to basically divert from things. They steal our information. They steal our technology. Um, it's an open plan. And we've got this system in America where basically somehow the people who oppose the United States, you know, get to say to get to still get a say. In other words, like, you know, all the pro-China guys still get a say. Why do they get a say? I'm so right. I, I think you have to call them out on that. And that brings me to I think the real business conclusion here is this. Look, I think the Foxconn thing has really rattled U.S. business. In other words, what they're looking at now is they're going, holy cow, even Apple is having trouble up there. One of the points that I always make is whenever there's an unrest in a place like China, if you're a business, the first person that suffers in the business, what did they do at Foxconn? Oh, we need to give these people a $1,400 stipend. US, who paid for that? It's the Chinese Party and Communist Party to pay that. Foxconn paid for it. Apple paid for it. Okay. Then there's all the little other bargains. You know, if you give them this, they'll be happy. If you give them that, they'll be happy. All right. Maybe Apple can afford it. It's, it's a blip, you know, a couple hundred million bucks. It's a blip on their radar screen. But for medium-sized companies, smaller companies, do you really want to start doing that? The second part of it is 
who really now wants to go work in China if you're a Westerner? In other words, you're even going to have a tough time getting people from the developing world who want to go work in China now because the yeah, politics are so, it's, it's very difficult. And if you can't get people to come, that's a problem. The second thing that's going to happen, the other thing that shouldn't say the second, one of many things that's going to happen is we're going to see a continued exodus of the most talented Chinese. Talent has many different things, but the first thing talent has to do is has to get someplace where it can operate. In other words, the most talented people always want to find the biggest playing field. They want to apply, find the places where they can go. Right now, that's not China. So basically, right. the second tier people stay around and then they move. It's kind of like in the U.S. government and their wisdom and personnel. They used to have that RIF program, you know, where they'd let people leave early. Like we'd come to Kristen Witten and say, Kristen, we're looking to cut back on the department here. And, you know, you've got 17 years. We'll round you up and you can leave on 20. You're like the go-getter in the government. You're the best guy we got. You say yes and leave. Fat Mark, on the other hand, is like, <laughs> well, I'm not going to take it. I got, I'm comfortable here. So who ends up running the division? Well, Fat Mark runs the division. And the go-getter, Kristen Witten, leaves. And that's because you're talented. You're looking to do things. And you figure, hey, I'll take 40% of my salary with me. I'll go out. I got a new, I got a new start in life. And... This is the situation they have in China. Xi Jinping is just, he's, he's tearing down talent. He's scaring it away. And you can't run a country like this. And we just saw the birth numbers. In 2021, they had 10.6 million people. That's down from 2000, I think, 16, 16, 16.6 16. million. Wow. So what have they lost in the, in, in the last, not even 10 years, the last seven years? They're down 22 million people. The replacement rate, they're, they're, they, in my mind, they've already flipped because of migration, people leaving. And I think also they underreport. I think they overreport births. So yeah. I, by their own number, they're 460,000 difference. So in 2022, there was supposed to be 2035 when they went negative or 2040 or something like that. They're going to go in 2022. They're going to go negative growth. And once that starts happening, everything goes down. Everything right. Goes. It just starts to feel much lower. It starts to feel like it's like Japan. Detroit. Yeah. yeah. Detroit. It becomes Detroit. It becomes all of a sudden there's no need for new housing. The schools aren't there. It becomes it becomes a cycle. You know, it's uh, it's it's it schools close. People don't realize what it's really what, what it really does. I mean, and, and it's not like there's a Mexican border. The India. It's not like people are coming from India. I always tell somebody, I said, look. Here's, your, here's the case for China. Imagine if India was south of the U.S. where Mexico is. You know what I'm saying? There'd be 500 million people come into the U.S. Mayorkas could do it all in one week. All right. Um, whereas if you come back to some other things, you look at some of the other things in life, as I tell people, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different in the sense of nobody's going. Nobody goes to China. Nobody immigrates. They're migrates. They're, they're not interested. Right. You know. Right. And certainly, you know, young go getters, even even the even the amoral bankers who don't mind the oppression aren't going, you know, from uh, business schools here in Europe to Hong Kong anymore. If they're going to go abroad, they're going to Singapore or Dubai, uh, maybe New York or London, maybe not. But they're not going to Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, you know, which brings us, I mean, well, we're to, to Taiwan, same issue. Nobody's going nothing. I'm, I'm really I'm really getting worried. 
What do you think? Right. Of the so for background, with with Taiwan, you had mid, there's sort of equivalent of midterm elections in the ruling DPP, the uh, Democratic Progressive Party, which is kind of so-so on economics, but good on uh, opposing Beijing's agenda and standing up for Taiwan's democracy, got its hat handed to it. But um, people are saying it's not really a vindication of the KMT, the opposition party. That's the party that traditionally says, well, we know how to talk to China. We know how to do business with China. If you want less tension with China, put us in office, that it's more of um, a condemnation, I guess, if you will, of Tsai Ing-wen, the president and her politics, and just sort of some of the corruption and incompetence in the DPP this cycle, um, that it's not a statement on China, and that um, you know, it, it actually puts Tsai in a very weak position to influence the 2024 presidential election in Taiwan, and it probably puts William Lai, the vice president, in a better position. Uh, is, that, is that how you're reading it? Let me ask you a question first. I mean, what do you, what do you think this does for the Chinese? Do you think do you think people are saying, well, the Chinese are going, OK, we're going to back off now. Do you think that do you think this election changes that or speeds it up? I don't think so. No, I think the Chinese probably don't. I think they see the same KMT that we do and realize this is out of favor, not just for a cycle or two, but in a generational sense. Yeah. And that, um, you know, they've just sort of they'll still try and influence politics in Taiwan, of course, but not through some careful finesse of the parties. There's also the emergence of a new party in Taiwan. So my guess is it doesn't change uh, Beijing's conduct much, but what do you think? That's what I wanted to ask you. I wanted that because I, I don't think it changes much either. I think they actually look at it. And if you're a military strategist, you're going, hey, now I've got mayors in office that once I let some missiles go, these guys will be looking to cut deals. In other words, Taiwan's actually more insecure in my in my mind because there's always been a strategy the Chinese have had with Taiwan, and that's always been kind of a regionalization strategy. You know, they they always try to reward certain areas, they punish others. If we remember when the KMT took Kaohsiung a number of years ago, yeah. and we got we got the mayor down there, magically all these good things happened to Cal, to, to South South um, South. Taiwan farmers and merchants and all these things in terms of access to China and markets and things they're pushing. Um, I, I, I think they're actually more, that's the big question to me. I think they're more insecure. I'm also getting a little worried for Taiwan about when TMSC is saying, hey, we're going to build some of our most advanced chips in, in the U.S., because to me, the Chinese are going to look at that and they're going to say at a certain point in time, the Americans will be making enough chips, have expanding enough things that basically they can they can they'll they'll feel there's no strategic impetus. You know, the old argument, we've got to protect the chips that's going to disappear. So I, right. I, 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 I think there's a lot of things going against Taiwan. Uh, I think the birth rate, I think the lack of immigration. I, I think this election, when we look back at it. Uh, two or three years from now, I don't think they're going to invade in the next two or three years. But I think maybe four years down the road, five years down the road, if Xi Jinping gets a hair up his ass, you know what I'm saying? I think there could be a real, real problem. And, you know, the DPP did get their hat handed to him. I mean, it's 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 just you, they talk about everything that people didn't want to talk about. It was kind of like watching the Republicans, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like. You look at you look at the Republicans that won and the Republicans that lost. The Republicans that won, we're talking about like New York and Florida, crime, crime, economy, economy, economy. The people that lost 
we're talking about silly, silly things. You know what I'm saying? Dr. Oz was taught making fun of a guy. You know, uh, um, um, you look at some of the other people. Um, Laxalt was the only one I thought who lost a big Democratic state. Um, he probably could have gone. I, th I think he would have been a better candidate for them. But it's a Democratic state. It was always a heavy lift, but he did pretty well. But to me, I think what you're going to see out of Taiwan in the next two to three years is really the KMT starting to establish itself with the people as just delivering goodies. We always forget, people always forget, the biggest thing economically that's happened in 20 years in Taiwan in terms of ease has been the establishment of cross-strait direct air links. It's been huge. Kristen, I, I remember the days when guys from, if you wanted to go to Shanghai, you basically took a whole day, you'd leave, the, the 5 a.m. flight was the favorite flight to take from Hong Kong, like 5.30 in the morning. Six. You'd fly to Hong Kong. Then from Hong Kong, you'd have an hour and a half layover, an hour layover, and then you'd fly to Shanghai. You'd get into Shanghai. Your morning would start at 3.30 in the morning. You'd get into Shanghai and be in your office desk at 1.30, completely exhausted. Change that with nowadays, it's basically four hours, you know, mm -hmm. door to door, four hours, you know. And, and that makes a huge difference. You know, it's a connection. Ma Jingzhou, you know, President Ma did that. And that's, a that's had a huge resonance with the people for a long time. And I hate to say it, the DPP people, because none of them do business in China. None of them do business for the most part. None of them go up there. Most of those people don't really recognize that essentially that was a, that's the bread and butter issue that actually kind of, to me, You've got to always shoot for if you're the DPP or the KMT. You've got to deliver something for people. Yeah. And the KMT talks about the same social, cultural issues all the time. You know? Yeah, that's it surprised me in the analysis that everyone seemed to say, oh, it's personality, it's scandal, it's uh, missteps, it's this, that, and the other. And no one's really saying there was a big economic angle. And Taiwan's economy did okay, even despite locking down, certainly not yeah. the hospitality uh, sector, but because of exports, because of semiconductors uh, and the huge demand for that, they just on a GDP basis, they look okay. These are not the Asian tigers of the 1980s without, you know, with magnificent growth. That's the envy of everyone around the world. But they did OK, but uh, they could do a lot better. So you do think that even if it's hard to put your finger on exactly what economic issue um, that that generated a level of discontent that made people more open to switching parties in those in the Taipei and Taoyuan governorships and a few others. I mean, the problem is the DPP just has no plan. Chai is a lousy campaigner. I am so tired of, I call it the, I call it like the Chai defense, Chai defense league. You know what I'm saying? Like the moment you say something bad about her, every LGBT group, every left-wing cultural group, every, oh, she's the greatest in the world. Oh, she's the greatest in the world. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, I think she's a competent leader, but she's a lousy campaigner and she basically wins because China gets her elected. You know, in other words, they they huff and they puff and people go, OK, you know, she we know she won't sell us out. But it's just it's just it's just um, to me, it's just as I would say, it's just I mean, they're, they're just it's you see how they lose. You see where they lose. You know, they can't win. Now, that does that mean the KMT is going to win in the next cycle? 
Probably not, because I'm sure China will come in, as they always do, and they will demand something. You must be subservient. And then the KMT seniors will say, okay, yes, give us some money, and they'll be subservient. And then poor Eric Chu or whoever's out there for the KMT campaigning is going to get his – everybody's going, oh, we can't trust this guy again. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and that's it. And the KMT also has you know, such bad relations with the U.S., They've really gone out of their way to ruin those relations. They claim they haven't, but I can't think of, I can't think of, a, 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 I really can't think of any think tank in D.C. or any congressional office that's pro-KMT. You know, they'll take their money, of course. Everybody takes their money, you know, but other than that, not really a whole lot. I yeah. don't, I don't like that, man. Well, uh, before we go, we should circle back one more time to, to China. Um, the, coming up December 1st, Jimmy Lai, your boss, uh, goes on trial. He's already, of course, in prison on a phony baloney uh, charge, but this is the new one then under the national security law. There's also development over this past weekend where the Vatican came out on a Saturday night, very low news attention time, and did express some displeasure with Beijing seating, I guess, one of its uh, own choices for bishop, for cardinal, instead yeah, of running they basically this they completely violated the agreement. Even Beijing, they just named it Screw the Vatican. Look, on Jimmy, the guy standing his ground, nobody really expects him to not be convicted. I, I think the thing is the, the Brits need to wake up, the American needs to wake up, and I think also the Chinese need to wake up. Once they convict Jimmy, the only thing Jimmy represents for China is trouble. Um, Hong Kong is securely within their grasp. Um, and so we'll see basically what the Chinese decide to do with Jimmy after they convict him. He's 75 years old. He's been in jail for now, just really now two years. This is the week he was arrested. So for two full years, he's been in custody. He was out for maybe four or five days in late December around Christmas, but he was still in custody at home. So we'll see what they do with him, you know, after this. Um, but I think, I think it behooves everyone for Jimmy to be released as quickly as possible. He's done his time. The charges are bogus. Everybody knows they're bogus. You know what I'm saying? Um, as for Cardinal Zinn, it proves him right. The Vatican basically got hosed is the only way to say it. They were lied to, but they openly accepted it. This is where people could never, I am going to bump into a couple of Jesuits priests and go, oh, well, the Holy Father, the Chinese lied to him. No, the Chinese told the Holy Father and they told the Secretary of State of the Vatican all along what they were going to do. They told him everything that was going to happen. You'd have to be a fool not to believe it or a willing conspirator. So they're one of the other, um, probably a willing conspirator because they wanted the deal so badly. And they threw Cardinal Zinn under the bus. They threw the church under the bus. Let me give you an example I told somebody earlier about today. These students out on the street who are out there, all these people, combined there's probably a couple hundred thousand people demonstrating right now in China. That's my point why it's not that many people yet. You know what I'm saying? We're not seeing millions march. Hmm. I don't think we will because I think they'll shut it. I think the brutality we'll see will be incredible. But Imagine going to them and trying to be a spiritual relief to them or something like that. We're the Catholic Church. Oh, you're the ones who cut the deal with the guy we're protesting against right now. You're the ones who threw your own people under the bus. If you're asking somebody to be part of your faith, to believe with you and to basically walk with you, 
you got to have some credibility. And the Holy Father has completely thrown that under the bus, largely because, and this is a cheap shot, I know, because I don't think the Jesuits, they're, I think they're really more into the country and the deal and doing that than they are into basically the religion. It's, it's, a, it's a sad, sad thing that's happened here. It's a sad, sad thing. All right. Well, seem to be at a at a nadir, but um, hope springs eternal, and certainly things are going to be, I think, clarified a lot. Uh, that myth of Wall Street that the CCP is what you have to do business with, and that they the implicit myth that they speak for the Chinese people. I think we've seen already that once again, it's a reminder that they are not particularly stable over the very long term. They face some of the tensions that other communist systems would face, and they don't speak for for all of the uh, Chinese people. And uh, we're probably going to be reminded of that again and again. And on Jimmy and Cardinal Zen, you know, I think it really behooves. There's there's strong support on Capitol Hill, but for the Biden administration, I know they want a climate deal, same way Lyndon Johnson wanted a anti-ballistic missile treaty deal from the Soviets during 1968 in Prague. But the importance of elevating dissidents to help the American people, not that they need a lot of help, uh, but to help people around the world personify the evil of this system that threatens us. So it's not just some humanitarian gesture to care about dissidents like Jimmy. It's, uh, I would argue, a, a national security imperative. Is that is that the right way to uh, look at that, Mark? Final word? I think, look, I think it's absolutely. I think the only thing I'd say to that is one of the things I've said about the elites and I've always said about them is they've never had their ass kicked. And that's one of the problems. They they don't think they don't really believe that they're under threat. How who could who could threaten me? I went to all the right schools. I know all the right people. Everything's fine. My mortgage is everything's good. They they don't see the threat. It's the same. It's the same. It's just they don't see it. They don't they don't recognize it. They don't see part of it. Their 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 children don't serve in the military. Um, they are completely in their own little world. And you know, I I there was the saying. It's like basically. Strong men bring on peaceful times. Peaceful times bring on weak men. Weak men bring on bad times, our men, men and women. And bad times force us to go back to strong men and women. And, you know, right now, we're just in a time right now where, I mean, I, I have some hope for the Biden administration on China because I think instinctively a lot of them know it there. But I think there's just, there's something about those guys at, at that level. They just, you know, they just... Everything is an intellectual question with them. And I think you're dealing with the guy as they, they, my favorite cut on Xi Jinping is basically, he basically has a high school education. You know what I'm saying? He's a smart guy. He's like a mob boss. In other words, you know, if you ever watch Analyze This, every time I watch Analyze This with Billy (laughs) Crystal and I see De Niro, I think of Xi Jinping because basically he has that, he has that thing. Look, these guys aren't rocket scientists, but you know what I'm saying? They're not, they're not, they're not geniuses, but in their world, they know how to cut cut your heart out, and that's what we see in Xi Jinping all the time. Yeah, the guy is the guy is the guy is ruthless, and and I think the fact of the matter is is that American people had better figure out, and I think they're starting to figure out that basically he wants our crown. You know, what I'm saying he's coming, and the problem with the problem we have is is we should have like a full offensive linemen and defensive linemen fully geared up, ready to you know not get pushed back. And, you know, basically we've got the, uh, the tennis team up there, you know, <laughs> not, even, not even Mac, not even Mac and Roe and Connor are not even, you know, the, not even the Williams sisters, you know what I'm saying? Right. So anyway, that's, that's, they, a have, rough they have pom-poms on their, on their, pom-poms on their thing. That's right. All right. Well, well look, take care of yourself. 
Thanks, and hopefully the 2022 elections in both the U.S. and Taiwan are a bit of a wake-up call to, uh, to, do, to do better. Uh, that's, that's it good. for this episode. We'll be back again soon. If you like us, please subscribe on YouTube or leave us a comment. Thanks.